Amen. Good morning to you. It's great to see you all. And even those that just finished the Wharf to Wharf, I don't know what took you so long, but uh, just supposed to finish the race. I already showered and did first service and everything, but uh, that's okay. Philippians chapter 3 this morning, Philippians chapter 3, and the Apostle Paul, we know throughout the course of his ministry, he would go into a city, he would preach the gospel, that is the good news, that salvation is attained by a simple trusting in Jesus Christ for our sins, in his death, his burial, and his resurrection for us. And so he would preach that message, and the people in that city would believe that message, they would repent of their sins, and they would be filled with the Holy Spirit of God. But because the Apostle Paul was a missionary, often would not stay very long in a city like that, so he would move on to the next place, preaching the very same gospel message, and then right about at that point, I mean, just as soon as he would move on to the next city, right in behind him would come a group of individuals known as the Judaizers, who would infiltrate a local, fairly new, joy-filled group of Christians with a teaching known as legalism. Now, legalism has many layers, but for our purposes this morning, as it relates to salvation, legalism is essentially self-righteousness. The idea that through my own effort, I can be made right for heaven. Now, there are several problems with that idea, but I'll give you two before we jump into our text this morning. First of all, the Bible teaches that the only righteousness that is acceptable by heaven, by God, is a perfect righteousness. And since every single person here in this room has already been less than perfect up until this point in your life, and if you can't take my word for that, I'll try to explain that a little bit later on, but we will speak to that point that none of us has been perfect, and so self-righteousness doesn't work on that level. And then number two, to say that self-righteousness or that my effort can be added to Christ's righteousness in some way is to suggest that what Jesus did on the cross was insufficient to pay for the forgiveness of our sins and that it must have some way be supplemented by our own human effort. So a lot of times the Judaizers would come into a city and they would say, okay, you believe in Jesus, that's great, but you also have to keep the law of Moses or you've got to observe the dietary restrictions or specifically, as it would seem to be the case in Philippi, that they needed to be circumcised. Now, I don't imagine that there's anybody here this morning that is in danger of falling back into some sort of legalistic rut by thinking that they need Jesus and also to be circumcised. But don't be fooled. Legalism is very much real and very dangerous for the church today. It is not only the enemy of true faith, but it is also an enemy of joy for the believer in Jesus Christ. And think about it, when Jesus was on the cross right before he died, he uttered those famous words. In fact, we just got done singing it. He said, it is finished, right? In the Greek, one word, to talistai, to bring about to completion, to be paid in full. And that was what he was declaring, that that sacrifice was complete. 
But the self-righteous act as if what Jesus really said upon that cross was, okay, there's a good start, and now you go and you take it from here. And if somebody really believes that, and they live that way throughout life, as if Jesus got the ball rolling, and now you've got to pick it up and take it from there, if you really believe it, that person will miss heaven. But there's also a sense in which a believer can come to Christ, can have an understanding of grace, can be walking with God, and then over time, fall back into a mentality of self-righteousness, and that is a recipe for misery where it becomes all about, instead of what Jesus did and the sufficiency of Jesus, it becomes all about do this, don't do that, go here, don't go there. Here is my religious ritual or observations that I do on a regular basis in order to maintain my right standing with God. And we miss out on the fact that we were never good enough to begin with, for by grace we have been saved through faith and that not of ourselves, it is not of works. The Bible very teaches clearly to us. And so a believer can come to Christ and can come to Christ on the basis of grace and then somewhere down the road, knowing that when they came to Christ, they never brought anything with them to the table. They never brought any kind of righteousness, no righteousness on their own. But then later on in life can come to believe that maybe because of their sin or their lack of good deeds or their lack of good works or lack of involvement in whatever, a ritual that they haven't followed, that somehow God is disappointed in them and therefore now they need to do something in order to improve that standing with God as if you ever did something in the first place to attain that right standing with him. And then you lose your joy. Because inevitably you will never live up to your own standard of righteousness, let alone God's. You'll never live up to that. You don't live up to the level of your conscience. And we'll talk about that later on as well. And that's the evidence of the fact that we've fallen short and do fall short, and that's why we have to rely on God. Imagine if this morning you're sitting here in your seat and God were to throw down from heaven a tennis ball to you, and he was to say, okay, that tennis ball represents salvation. And so, no, you're born again because you've placed your faith in Jesus Christ, but in order to get to heaven, you've got to hold on to that tennis ball throughout life. Don't drop that ball. Whatever you do, don't drop that ball. Now, what would you do? You would hide in your room and lock the door and come into contact with nobody ever. You would never go share your faith for fear that if you were to trip and fall and drop that ball along the way, you wouldn't go to heaven. So you would engage in no Christian activity. You would serve God in no capacity because your desire, your soul desire would be to hold on to that ball. What you've done, and you can add or fill in the blank with any form of self-righteous legalism that there is, and now it's incumbent upon you to perform in such a way in order to keep your salvation. You came to God on the basis of everything that he did for you and nothing that you did, but now you think you have to maintain that right standing through some sort of act on your own, and that is gonna produce, it's gonna rob joy completely from you. And God wants us to have joy. He wants us to have joy because as Christians, we're to be different from the unsaved world so that they see what the Holy Spirit's presence and the forgiveness of sins can produce in a human life. It's contagious for someone to see joy and peace in a Christian and say, I want that. I want that very much. And so he's been talking about that in this epistle. Joy, of course, is the theme. It's not just the theme, but Paul is overflowing with joy as he writes this epistle, despite the fact, as we've said many times, he's in a Roman prison. He's chained 24-7 to a Roman guard. He is possibly, he doesn't know yet, 
And eventually he would be, but he is awaiting the judgment of Caesar Nero and he could be executed and his exhortation is unto joy. And we've been looking at some of the things in the first couple chapters that sometimes rob us of our joy. We've been also looking at some of the things that give us reason to have joy as he exhorts us again and again and again. But perhaps the greatest reason in the life of a Christian to have joy is grace. Grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, right? Grace and peace, always in that order, because you cannot know the peace of God unless you first experience the grace of God. And once you experience the unmerited, unearned, undeserved favor of God, then you have peace with God, you're not at war with God anymore, and as a result of that, you can have tremendous joy knowing the price has been paid, the Holy Spirit lives inside of you, testifies to the truth of heaven, and there's nothing to worry about in light of that. And with that joy, now I'm a more effective witness for Christ. And that's why he keeps repeating this over and over and over again. Verse 1, he says, Finally, my brethren, rejoice in the Lord. Now, it would be different if he said, Rejoice in your circumstances. That would be a lot harder. But he doesn't say that. He says, Rejoice in the Lord. Even for the child of God, life can be very, very hard. But there's never, are we ever without a cause for joy. Because our joy is not in the circumstances of life. That's why joy is superior to happiness. Because we can have joy even if our circumstances are sort of bringing us down, so to speak. Because what emerges above that is the joy of knowing that our God, He is always the same. He never ever changes. So he's always forgiving, he's always loving, he's always full of grace. His promises always come to pass. He cannot and will not ever break a promise to you and I. And because of that, then we can know that there's assurance in the Spirit's testimony inside of us to the truthfulness of our salvation. So over and over again, Paul says, rejoice in the Lord. And you think, well, we've been looking at this for a couple chapters now. We get the idea, right? Rejoice, joy. We keep talking about it over and over and over again. And it's almost like Paul would respond at this point by saying, I knew you would say that. So end of verse one, for me to write the same things to you is not tedious, but for you, it is safe. Paul says, I'm gonna keep reminding you of these same things. And whether you think it's tedious or not, it's not, it's not tedious for the one who was writing these things. You ever sat in church before and you thought to yourself, I've heard this so many times before. And maybe you have. And I know that because maybe I've thought that before. In fact, last week, we were wrapping up. We were speaking on joy in the life of a believer. And I closed with that age-old acronym, Jesus, others, yourself. Joy, right? A bunch of people started laughing at me. Why? Because... We've heard it a billion times before, but you got to hear it one more time and you got to hear it one more time. Now, you know how many times I've taught it, let alone hear it? And yet it's not tedious. It's something we need to know. But here's the deal. Listen, the average pastorate, the United States of America, that is the time in which a pastor comes, fills a pulpit and stays there is slightly less than two years and then they move on. They teach everything that they know, and then about the point where everybody starts to go, oh, we've heard this all before. Then that pastor moves on and finds a different place to share the things that they have been taught. 
So, you know, we've been here, I've been here a little bit more than four years, so I, okay, well I get double the pension then or something like that, right? But the fact of the matter is, is that the pressure that's put on a pastor to find some insight in the text, I mean, to see something that no one's ever seen before in that passage, probably because it's not in that passage that they try to find those things, causes them to have that kind of pressure and then to think, well, everybody just thinks this is tedious if I keep reminding them of these things. But don't forget, God, it's not Paul, it's not me, it's not any pastor you know, God is repetitious on purpose. It's not like God's up in heaven and he's like, well, you know, I really could do a great thing here in writing the New Testament. Half of it's being written by Paul, but he's so repetitious. I guess I just gotta work with the human vessel that I have here. No, he's writing by inspiration of the Holy Spirit. And so God then is the one that is repetitious. The, the Bible says that we're not to pray with vain repetition. So if God tells us not to pray with vain repetition, then that means that his repetition cannot be vain. It's there and it's needed for a reason. To say that this is tedious and I'm hearing the same thing over and over again, it's kind of like saying an apple, you're gonna give me an apple? I had one of those first when I was three years old. I don't need another apple at this point in time. And that's the idea sometimes, well we hear about grace or we hear about joy. And we wonder how often do we have to hear about these things. We don't have to worry about that too much if we just go systematically through the Bible verse by verse. Because we can trust that God gives us the exact amount, the right proportion of themes and ideas and concepts and reminders here throughout. But not only is repetition in the Bible just to remind us, we forget sometimes, right? Are we a forgetful people? No question about that. And we need to be reminded, but it's not just that. It's not just that we need to be reminded. He's not just telling us because he thinks that we're going to forget. See, it's not about us sitting here and going, I've already heard that before. The question is not, have you heard that before? The question is, are we implementing that in our lives? That's the issue. That's often why we keep hearing it. It's one of the things that I've noticed to be true about Christians down throughout the years is Christians can be very good at hearing a teaching, they can receive that teaching, and then they can be very good at passing that teaching on to someone else, even if they don't implement it in their own lives. So you can hear it, you can hear Jesus, others yourself, joy, that's a great acronym. Go online, go on Facebook, post on Facebook, 47 likes, sweet, that's awesome. But I'm miserable that day because I had to spend time on Facebook and clean the house. I didn't implement the very thing I posted on Facebook about as it relates to joy. And so as a church body, I think it's important that we are teachable, humble enough to receive even the simplest of truths in God's word, rejoice in the Lord. Now having said that, for me, in some ways, the most intriguing word there in verse one is that word finally, because it would give you the indication that he's about to close, like he's about to close out the letter. But if you flip the page, you know we're only about halfway through the letter at this point. So is he, as many preachers often do, trying to keep the attention of his audience by assuring them that he's almost done? Hey, finally, we're about to wrap up, folks. I don't know who would ever say that. We're almost done. Sound like anyone you know? I don't know. He's not doing that. It's a transition word that basically suggests that at this point, the Spirit has moved him and he's gonna just switch subjects here. It's along the same lines, but it's just a little bit different subject as Paul is now gonna hit at 
what is at the heart of what robs joy from the believer. He's been talking about joy. Now he's going to say, now here is what can rob us of that joy. And that is what we opened with this morning, self-righteousness. And he begins by addressing the very teachers that would promote such teachings. Verse 2, he says, beware of dogs. And you don't think about Lassie or the poodle that won the Westminster Kennel Club dog show or something like that. He's talking about the kind of dogs that would roam in packs in that day. A lot of those animals, dangerous, infectious. Not just because they would attack or bite, but because when they would bite, since they had, uh, many of them were diseased, then whatever you were bit with, that became a part of you as well. So what Paul is saying, and you know who he's talking about, right? He's talking about these false teachers. You avoid them like a dog with rabies. He says, beware of dogs, beware of evil workers, beware of the mutilation. Now, three times he uses that word beware there in verse two. Beware, beware, beware. And in every instance, he's talking about these Judaizers, right? He's talking about these false teachers. But categorically, who is he talking about? Listen, who is he talking about categorically? Religious people. Very religious people that he says, beware of. And on this planet and in this day, Satan will lead more people to hell through the influence of religious people than what sex, drugs, rock and roll, atheism, agnosticism could ever dream of, I believe. And so he says, beware of the kinds of things that religious, and I don't mean religious in the sense of true religion, but of self-righteous, works-based religion can do to deceive an individual into thinking that they can get to heaven through some sort of human merit at all. They have their methods, and it's clever and it's subtle usually. It's not obvious. In that day, they would come maybe to the believers in Philippi, and they would say something like, oh yeah, it's all about Jesus. We're all about Jesus. But that's just the way to get started. You don't really think that Paul meant that you just have to place your trust in Jesus, do you? You gotta also be circumcised. Well, Paul says, verse three, for we are the circumcision, that is, true believers who worship God in the spirit, rejoice in Christ Jesus, and have no confidence in the flesh. Now, isn't it interesting? Because circumcision, of course, was something that was literally a fleshly activity. The cutting away of the flesh as a symbol of a commitment to God. But what Paul's saying is that symbol of commitment, cutting away of the flesh, we don't attain any kind of righteousness by anything that we could do in the flesh, just the opposite. On the contrary, he says it comes with no confidence in the flesh, no confidence at all. When the Apostle Paul talks about the flesh here in this verse, and anywhere else for that matter, he's referring to our human effort to be good enough for God. And by the way, the Bible doesn't have very much, if at all, anything good to say about the flesh. In Romans chapter 7, Apostle Paul wrote, For I know that in me that is in my flesh nothing good dwells. And yet the sad thing is today, and you know this to be true, the sad thing is there are so many people that are relying exclusively on themselves in order to be right with God or to get into heaven. And that's going to end in a real, real tragedy. One of the things that we know is true, you take the average person on the street and you ask them, 
How do you get into heaven? And usually the answer to that question is something along the lines of, well, I just think I have to do a little bit more good than bad. Isn't that usually the answer? In fact, I don't know if you've ever seen this before. I've seen it many, many times. You get a camera crew of evangelists and they take to the streets or they'll even sit outside of a church and they'll talk to people upon exiting that church and they say, or they ask them, hey, do you believe you're going to heaven? And if so, how are you gonna get there? And I'm telling you, six, seven, eight out of 10 will say something along the lines of, well, I just hope I do a little bit more good than bad along the way. They have no assurance. There's no real joy there because they're never sure if they've attained that at all whatsoever. That's not what the Bible teaches. What do you think the Apostle Paul would say to an answer of a question like that? Now, we'll talk about that, but before we do, he's going to put up for us in these next few verses his spiritual resume, as if to say this. If anybody ever did a little bit more good than a little bit more bad, it was the Apostle Paul. If anybody could have ever attained a right standing with God through the works of the flesh, through self-righteousness, through legalism, it was the Apostle Paul. He says, verse 4, though I also might have confidence in the flesh, if anyone else thinks he may have confidence in the flesh, I more so. He's not bragging here. He's simply saying, if anyone could have confidence in the flesh as it relates to trying to attain a righteousness by self, he more so did, and he's going to present his resume to us. But his point basically as the poster child for legalism, what he's saying is, listen, I know I've gone down this road and I've gone down this road before any of you have ever gone down that road and there's nothing there for you down that road. Don't waste your time. Been there, done that. I've climbed to the top of legalistic systems. I have risen to the top of work-based environments. I'm telling you right now, I have the resume to show you. He says, verse 5, that he was circumcised the eighth day. He was no new convert to Judaism. This is a way of saying, I was born in it. So like for some of you, you could have been like born and then your parents had you in church that very Sunday after you were born. Congratulations, but it does you absolutely no good in terms of atta attaining a right standing with God. He says he was of the stock of Israel. I have Hebrew blood in me. I'm no proselyte at all. He was raised in a moment and he could trace it all the way back. He says he was of the tribe of Benjamin as well. That would have been a source for tremendous pride, being of that tribe. They went into the promised land there and as a part of the allotment for the land, included in that for the tribe of Benjamin was the city of Jerusalem. The, another Benjamite, the first king was King Saul, first king of the nation of Israel. And it could be because Paul, when he was born, was named Saul. He could well have been named after Saul. So he's of the tribe of Benjamin. He said he was a Hebrew of Hebrews. I think as if to say he was a purebred. You go back, look at his lineage. No Gentiles there in that lineage. All Jews all the way through. A Hebrew of Hebrews. Concerning the law, he said, a Pharisee. I mean, I wasn't some, you know, liberal like Sadducee, who didn't believe in the resurrection. I was in the strictest sect, very select few that could ever be Pharisees. And Saul of Tarsus, before he was Paul, was one of those. Concerning zeal, he said, persecuting the church. So even among the Pharisees, he was even more zealous. It's almost like he's saying, these legalists, these Judaizers that have come to you and they're saying to you, hey, 
you got to add something. We are so zealous for God that we're not going to just believe in Jesus. We're going to add all of these other things, so to speak. Paul would say, that's nothing. I persecuted the church before I came to Christ. I would have arrested all of you, hauled you off to prison, maybe even consented to your death. That's how zealous I was. And then he says, concerning the righteousness which is in the law, blameless. Not that he was sinless, but that he lived in a moral life outwardly so that no accusation could be brought against him. So what Paul's saying, it's not like he went down to Barnes and Noble, bought like, you know, legalism for dummies or something like that. He lived this life. He excelled in this environment. He reached the pinnacle of it. All of these things, this resume, unmatched, and yet he says, verse seven, but what things were gained to me. Because at one point, before he came to Christ, he counted all these things gain as things that made him different, that maybe made him better, or at least he thought they did in God's eyes. So at one point he said, these things were gain, but now he says these things, I've counted loss for Christ. And once my eyes were open on that road to Damascus, to the truth of the gospel of Christ, I realized that all of these things that I thought were gain in terms of maybe being good enough in God's eyes, every single one of them I count as loss. The word loss there, it's three times in verse seven and verse eight, three times we see it. And it means loss, but it also means damaging. And so what the apostle Paul is saying is, these things aren't even neutral. All of the things that we just read through in terms of here's what I have to bring and offer up to God, not only were they not helping him to draw nearer to God, but in reality they were pulling him further away from God. And you know, that's actually true in our own lives. You think about it just for a minute. Personalize this. You think about the fact that in your own life there are things that you've accomplished successes, achievements, plaques on your wall, social statuses, things of that nature that we as human beings can take pride in to a certain extent, sinful or otherwise, that enables us to think somehow we might be just a little notch above someone else or others or sinners or whatever the case may be. And this sometimes is the trap in terms of self-righteousness, to look at my life or for you to look at your life and to think that maybe I'm just a little bit of a cut above and so I don't need the righteousness that comes from Christ. So you think about all of the things that Paul just spoke of, that he's counted all loss. Now you think about all your human achievements and accomplishments. You think about your career. You think about maybe some position you have that is a powerful position within the community. You think about your family your spouse, the success of your marriage, how you've raised your kids. You think about, you know, maybe just who you are as a person, your abilities, your athletic ability. You think about maybe your beauty or whatever the case may be, something you cling to. I have a lot of relationships, whatever. Look at my Rolodex, all these things that we might look at and think that makes us special. Now you take those things and first of all, lay it alongside what the apostle Paul did in terms of trying to be right or zealous before God, but then even more so, take all of human accomplishments in the history of the world, everything that we've done, and lay it alongside the person of Jesus Christ. The person of Jesus Christ, as John described him 
In Revelation chapter 1, the vision that he received there, the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, listen to what John wrote about Jesus. He said, clothed with a garment down to the feet and girded about the chest with a golden band, his head and hair were white like wool, as white as snow, and his eyes like a flame of fire. His feet were like fine brass, as if refined in a furnace, and his voice as the sound of many waters. And he had in his right hand seven stars. Out of his mouth went a sharp two-edged sword, and his countenance was like the sun shining in its strength. And when I saw him, John says, I fell at his feet as dead. But he laid his right hand on me, saying to me, Do not be afraid. I am the first and the last. I am he who lives and was dead. And behold, I'm alive forevermore, and I have the keys of Hades and death. Now, in light of that description of Jesus Christ, how does human accomplishment look in comparison? It looks like loss in every single way. And then you consider the humility of this very resurrected, glorified Jesus there in Revelation chapter one that we saw in Philippians chapter two humbled himself coming down from heaven to live as a man and going to the cross for our sins. And how could it not produce anything in us but to have us feel like to fall down at his feet as dead and come to the very same conclusion that Paul does here. He says, verse eight, yet indeed I also count all things lost for the excellence of the knowledge of Christ Jesus my Lord. Now notice, I want you to notice the subtlety there. In verse seven, he says he counted all things a loss. In verse eight, he says he counts all things. So when he came to Christ, he counted all of it a loss. Now, 30 years later when he writes this, there's a gap of time between when he's saved and when he writes to the church in Philippi. It's like 30 years later. He said, I counted it all. 30 years later, I still, present tense, count it a loss for the excellence of the knowledge of Jesus Christ. What is he saying? He's saying, when I came to Christ, I knew it was right. And 30 years later, there's not a day that goes by that I don't thank God that he broke into my life and revealed himself to me. There's never a day that goes by where I wonder, should I have become a Christian? I don't know about you, but I've been walking with the Lord, or at least I've been saved for about 30 years myself. And I never wonder if I should have been a Christian. That's not even, it's never even entered any portion of my thinking at all to wonder whether I made the right decision. There's no better way. There's no way, and there's no better way. There's no better life. And there's no way to heaven apart from Jesus Christ. Paul said, I count it all, all of that, everything he did, lost for the excellence of the knowledge of Jesus Christ. Now, he's not saying, I count all of my human accomplishment lost because I know about Jesus. The word knowledge there, that's the word that means a knowledge that comes by experience. So, for God so loved the world, right? That he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. The word believe there means to know by testing it to be so. And it's the same idea here, that the knowledge is a knowledge that comes by experience. It's not a knowledge that he got from 
reading books or from getting a theology degree or by being a Pharisee or anything like that. He studied those things, he lived those lives, and he said, I'm gonna pass all of that, I'm gonna turn in all of that, it's all lost in comparison to the knowledge of Jesus Christ. What is that knowledge by experience? A personal relationship with Jesus. See, everything that you could ever accomplish in this life, whether it is quote-unquote religious achievement or just human accomplishment, all of it is lost in comparison to a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. You believe that this morning? I'll tell you what, you think that there's anything in this world that is worth trading a personal relationship with Jesus Christ for at all whatsoever? There is nothing like that on this planet. There never ever will be. And yet the sad thing is, because it is about a personal relationship, it is about having tested it by experience. The sad thing is, many have observed, and it's true, that a lot of people will miss heaven by about 18 inches, which is the distance between what? Your brain and your heart. A lot of people will be raised in a church. A lot of people might even be raised in a Christian family. A lot of people may know the stories of the Bible. They may know about Jesus. They may know some parables. They may even understand the gospel to some extent, but it never translated to their heart and became a part of them, the Holy Spirit indwelling them, truly placing their trust in him. Paul said, I know and I've been at this 30 years. And I also was everything you could be religiously before that, and I'm telling you right now, I would trade it all for him. He says, verse eight, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things. Paul said, I suffered the loss of all things for the sake of Jesus Christ. They say, well, that's kind of dramatic. No, it's not. Maybe for you and me, because we come to Christ, and I don't think I suffered much at all in coming to Christ, not one bit. I don't think I lost anything. I only gained in coming to Christ, but he did. What did he lose? Paul probably lost his family. He probably lost his friends. He definitely lost his reputation within the community and for sure he lost his career. Everything that he had valued, everything that he had held near and dear to his heart. Imagine if you today, if I was like, okay, here's the gospel, I'm gonna lay it out for you, but in order to come to Jesus Christ and be saved, you're gonna lose your family, you're gonna lose your friends, you're gonna lose your reputation, you're gonna lose your career. How many people would sign up for that? And yet Paul did that, and then he looks back on it, and he says, I have no regrets. 30 years later, I count it all as loss. He says, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish. It's all garbage to me. I don't need any of it in comparison to what I've gained in Christ. And this is what he says about that. That I may gain Christ, verse 9, and be found in him, not having my own righteousness, which is from the law, which is no righteousness at all, by the way, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which is from God by faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings, being conformed to his death, if, verse 11, by any means I may attain to the resurrection of the dead. Now, the only way that any person can ever attain to the resurrection of the dead, which is a reference there to the promise of everlasting life, the promise of heaven, is they must recognize 
their need, their complete and utter need to be saved. That no person can attain to the resurrection of the dead apart from Jesus Christ. They cannot do it on their own. It's not something that they will ever be good enough on their own. Ephesians chapter 2 says this, but God, who is rich in mercy, because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. The Bible teaches that every single one of us, though we are born physically alive, that every single one of us is born spiritually dead, without the capacity to have a relationship with God. Now someone might say, well, what is the evidence that the Bible's claim is true that we are all born spiritually dead without a capacity for relationship with God? And one of the evidences to that is taught very clearly in Romans chapter two, which refers to the human conscience. Because everyone here and everyone in the world, and we know this to be true, has a conscience, a sort of internal, intuitive, right and wrong. We know certain things are right, we know certain things are wrong. Certain things are always right, and certain things are always wrong. Murdering, stealing, lying, those things are always wrong, and it is always right not to do those things. But one of the interesting things about how our conscience interacts with us is that our practical behavior, we know this to be true, always seems to fly just ever so slightly below the level of our conscience. Because we know that we ought to always do the right thing, we don't always do the right thing, we don't always live up to that level. And so the Bible teaches that our conscience then is higher, is higher than our practice, that the result of that or what that points to, or what that shows us is that our conscience has its origin in something higher or better than us, and that is namely God. And that testifies to two very important truths concerning our conscience. That there is a great gulf between who I am and what my conscience expects or teaches me along the way. And that gulf there is the difference between the origin of that conscience, which is God, and who I am. And that testifies to two things. Number one, I've been created. And number two, I have fallen from God's original intent for humanity. So what's God's solution for that? If I've made it very clear, and Paul's made it very clear that you cannot attain righteousness on your own, then what is the solution for that if the testimony of our conscience is that we live slightly below even our own expectations for ourselves, let alone God's expectations? What's God's solution? That he would provide a salvation himself from heaven that we could never attain on our own. The Bible says, for by grace you have been saved through faith, and then not of ourselves. It is a gift of God, it's not of works. And I don't know how God can be any more clearer than to say that it is not of works. That salvation does not come of works. Because once again, we would have to admit, everyone here would have to admit that the prevailing view in our society and around this world as it relates to salvation is that if you basically live a moral life or if you basically live a, a life that's a little bit better than your neighbor, then you're probably gonna make it to heaven. And the interesting thing about that is, well, if I live a little bit better than my neighbor, does that mean that my neighbor then is not making it into heaven? And yet I've never ever have you, I've never ever been to a funeral where ever, anyone ever went to hell. How about you? It's always just assumed that that person went to heaven no matter what. 
So I'm better than my neighbor, we're all kind of better than each other, and somehow that makes us feel good about ourselves, but that's not what the Bible teaches. There are a lot, a lot, a lot of problems with that kind of thinking. But even if you were to say, even if you were to say God were to grade on a curve, and the only people that don't get in are just terrorists and people that go into a movie theater and shoot up a bunch of people, or whatever the case may be, the problem with that is that still works. What you're doing is you're looking at their life and you're saying that whatever their works are disqualifies from heaven, and that still works. Say, so, well, no, actually, I keep the Ten Commandments, you say. No, you don't keep the Ten Commandments. Okay. <laughs> Nobody keeps the Ten Commandments. I'd spend my time arguing with you on that, but you'd lie to me in the process. Nobody keeps the Ten Commandments. Stop trying to convince people that they don't keep the Ten Commandments because they know they don't keep the Ten Commandments, let alone the other laws let alone all of the rituals, all of the feasts, all of the dietary restrictions. The Bible says, he who knows to do good and doesn't do it to him it is sin. So now it's not just don't do any of these things. Have you always done the very best thing in every given situation? The answer is no. So that means that you've also sinned. So that's just reality. Actually, the Bible says that uh, David was conceived in sin. He was a sinner upon conception. So even if you don't think you've sinned, you've been born in sin. So you say, well, that's not fair. That's not fair. That means that this plan that God has is not fair because no matter what, I'm not good enough. No, actually, it is more than fair. It's the most fair thing that has ever happened in the history of the world because God knew you would never be good enough even if he only gave you one rule. Don't eat of the fruit there on that tree, okay? Just don't eat of that fruit. Now you say, well, that was Adam. I wouldn't have made that mistake. No, he was our champion. I mean, this was Adam. They had fellowship with God and they still fell and ate of that fruit. Wouldn't matter how many rules we had, a rule just incites in you a riot. Wet paint, do not touch. Says who? Do not walk on the grass. Oh yeah? So it wouldn't matter how many rules there were, the fact of the matter is, the Bible says, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Every single one of us. So even more fair is that God used the law to show us our need for a savior. And then he provided that savior. He provided in the form of himself. He sent his son down from heaven. He lived a holy and sinless life. And he did it on our behalf. And then they put him upon that cross. I'm telling you, if he'd come today, they'd put him upon a cross. They'd crucify him anyway. It doesn't make any difference. So don't blame the Romans. Don't blame the Jews. Don't blame the Pharisees. He went to that cross to die for our sin. He died on that cross. He was buried in the tomb of Joseph of Arimathea, and then he rose again on the third day. And the Bible teaches that all we have to do as a response to his great love for us, it's a response. You understand? It's a response to God's great love for us is we have to put our faith in Jesus Christ and that sacrifice for us. How does God save? He saves by grace. Unmerited, unearned, undeserved favor because God is gracious and because God loves you. And so if you're here this morning and you don't know God or you've been relying upon your resume your accomplishment or the hope that maybe you've done a little bit more good than bad 
or your family history that you were born in a Christian home or you have an uncle that's a missionary. Whatever the case may be. I want to give you an opportunity here this morning to respond to that internal tug of the Holy Spirit inside of you, that conscience now, wants to go from being your conscience outside of you to the Holy Spirit living inside of you and having a personal relationship with Him. It's a forever commitment, but it's not overly complicated. It's to come to God and to say, I recognize that you died for me because I'm a sinner and that I need you. I need to be forgiven of my sins. If that's you this morning, you know because He's tugging on your heart right now. So you know that's you. And so what we're going to do, I'm going to ask you all to bow your heads and close your eyes. I'm going to give you an opportunity. If you've never responded to God's call of salvation, and at this moment in time you're here, and the Lord has spoken to you, and he wants to reveal himself to you, again, the Bible says all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. But the Bible teaches that when just one sinner repents, that all of heaven explodes in celebration and the finding of just one lost soul. And if that is you this morning, I'm gonna give you an opportunity. I'm gonna ask you just to do one thing. If you believe that you're a sinner and that you cannot make it to heaven on your own by being good enough and that you need Jesus Christ to be saved and you wanna make a commitment to him, the Bible says that if we believe in our heart and confess with our mouth that Jesus Christ is Lord, 